It's great to have this passage open. If you do have a Bible or perhaps the Bible on your phone, it's worth opening it up. And um, it might be a hardish book to find because it's such a thin one. So the way I do it is I open the Bible about in the middle. You land on Psalms and then just head forwards and you'll find it. I'll read the passage um, as we go through as well. But if you have got a Bible, it would be great uh, if you could um, follow it. So we're at verse 8 down to verse 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You know, as this kind of poetic passage begins, um, it's, it's pretty, it might remind you of, of other people who've, uh, who've spoken. Um, if you've been, perhaps you were expecting to do an English GCSE uh, this summertime, you might better tell me who said this. You ready? Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Do you know who wrote that and uh, what that's from? It's, uh, it's the play Macbeth, and Macbeth is reflecting on the death of his wife. And he's thinking in the light of death and in the light of this tragedy, well, life is just, it's meaningless. His language, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know, um, I've uh, got a dear friend in Italy who has who has been experiencing quarantine for longer than we have. And uh, he lives in a flat, three children. He's not even allowed out um, on the balcony. He's just kept inside. And uh, it was him who told me about this this platform. Maybe many of you knew about it already, Zoom. But uh, he said, this is a really good way of connecting together live. You try it. And that's part of the reason why we're trying it tonight. But a poet who's been really um, influential in his culture um, is Leopardi. Um, some people say he's the greatest Italian poet of the 19th century. And he, he, one of his thoughts was this. The thought that really crushes us is the thought of the futility of life, of which death is the visible manifestation He's saying, look, it's utterly crushing. It destroys a person to, to, to realize he thinks it's a correct conclusion to realize that life is me meaningless, futile, and that we land at that place thinking that because or because of death. If death comes, then everything else, therefore, is rendered meaningless. It has no hope, no purpose. It might be that you're listening in tonight and that is your view of life you know it's it's pretty pointless isn't it it's pretty futile and this incredible poet and great thinker who's writing this ancient book it didn't take him up to the he was thinking this years and years before that 19th century poet or before Shakespeare wrote Macbeth he was saying look in the light of the fact that everything's going to end in death and doesn't that mean that everything's meaningless? We've been uh, going through this book for a while. I've got this uh, expensive PowerPoint system. Here it is. Um, I hope you can read that on the wall. But uh, here, the question is, in verse 8 of chapter 12, in the light of everything, isn't life just meaningless? And if you want to go back through the series that we've been exploring, it, the, the uh, writer seems to have suggested that wisdom 
itself is meaningless. He says that pleasure, well, that is meaningless. The references to one to 11 achievement, you know, when things are advancing or you're doing some great project, that's all meaningless too. He's thinking promotion, you know, where somebody who was poor and low gets lifted up. Well, surely if it all just ends in death, then in life is meaningless, isn't it? Wealth. What's the point in gathering things around us if it all just ends like that? You know, you might be thinking, Blow, I think I'll uh, just switch over to ITV, actually. (laughs) I don't know why I bothered listening in tonight. This sounds a bit depressing. But the thing is that as this um, teacher is thinking these things through out loud, there's a kind of tension forming. And we're sitting in his shoes, standing in his sandals, and we're thinking together, that does seem to make sense, doesn't it? If life just ends with death, then it is meaningless. But then there's this tension inside us that says, but surely, surely that can't be it. Surely there's something more. And we kind of shift and fidget and explore and think, what it could it be? What could it possibly be that means that life isn't meaningless? And this brilliant bit of writing has been written to stir our hearts, to reach out and to think over and to mull through those biggest questions. What is life about? And is there any meaning and purpose to it at all? Well, the next section is verse nine. And here we find out about how this teacher, the writer of this um, amazing um, piece of poetic prophecy, well, and poetic philosophy, um, how he views wisdom. And it could be written by him or it could be written by somebody else as he is. He's introduced. We're given a bit of a, an insight into his method. And uh, and he talks about wisdom. It says in verse nine, he's wise. He imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. I think that's that's beautiful, isn't it? Um, as he talks about um, the, his method. What he does is he, uh, he thinks over things. You can see that the second part of verse nine. He searches out things. Then he sets them out in order to help us to think through things too. And in verse 10, it speaks of the value of the words. He searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. So we'll ask the PowerPoint team to change the slide now. Maybe it's Charlie at the back. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, And uh, so here it says, um, really, this is a summary of this next section. It's giving us an insight into into wisdom. And here in verse 10, we've read that wisdom, the right words, are upright. I wonder what it means by upright. I think that wisdom is shown to be something that is moral and good. And but at the same time, wisdom is true in verse 10. You know, it's not necessary that this universe, that those two things should connect. And there are many people who would say, well, you know, um, truth is not good. Truth is not moral. 
But here we're finding out that this wisdom that's been presented by this wise teacher, this wisdom that's right at the bedrock, at the bottom of everything, is both true um, and it is good. It's upright. It's, it's moral. It's something morally beautiful. And then in verses 11 and 12, it's an unusual picture. Um, I don't know if some of us have been able to just take a walk, you know, and there are are lambs out in the field and you might see some of the sheep out there. And uh, this is a picture from the countryside. And so let's read verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. This isn't things that we uh, understand or are using too often. But a goad was um, really just a stick with a point on it. And uh, if you wanted to, if you had a flock of sheep that were walking down a mountain path, you wanted to protect them from dropping down into a ravine or getting tangled up into a thorn bush around the corner, then you'd use this pointed stick and it sounds a bit rough but you'd use the pointed stick just to kind of nudge them back into the right direction that's the picture of a of a firmly embedded nail as well just something that just gives you a a little shock because it's just refocusing your direction getting you into the right place so that you're heading in the right direction again and as we've been exploring through this book i think it's been challenging my own heart you know We've, there are moments where the propaganda about pleasure begins to soak into my soul. And I think, no, that's what life is all about. Or perhaps another day I'm thinking, well, it's, it's wealth or it's material things. That's what's life about. And this book has been like a pointed stick, you know, as I nudge up against and um, that idea, this book has pointed me back into the right direction and true, beautiful wisdom, wisdom that comes from the one shepherd has that character that it's painful sometimes as it as it just pops us back, nudges us back into the right direction. And here tonight, we're just reminded of that character of wisdom, that it just pops us and points us back into the direction that makes life make sense this writer and this philosopher this student and teacher he was both as we've discovered and he warns the person reading it his son or his daughter the one who's who's listening that's you and me tonight that really we need to look primarily for our wisdom here um, in the scriptures the second part of verse 12, it's he obviously believes in writing because he's written this amazing book and he believes in studying. But he's saying, look, you're never going to get to the bottom of that. You're never going to get to the end of it. If you've been preparing for exams these last few months, you, you'll know uh, what he means. But the last part of this passage is really the so what? So what? And here it is. We've heard it read for us by Cat, but let's just read it again. It's verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. 
Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So this amazing piece of literature finishes with this big, so what? So all has been heard, beginning of verse 13. Here's the conclusion. And I want to lean forward and listen into this because I've been lost at some points through this book. But now he's going to sum it all up and help me to understand where he's been going, what it's all about. And he says this. In verse 13, he says, Fear God. He's saying there is a God who is there. There is one who is outside of this whole system. There is a God who is there, who's revealing himself to us. There's a God who should be held in awe. There's a God who we should have the deepest respect for. He is there. Fear God, it says. And I wonder about you tonight. You know, we're listening. Some of us close by here in Catrum, some of us thousands of miles away. It's so good that you're a part of this event here with us tonight. And as we sit here this evening reading these ancient words, we're being asked, well, do you fear God? Do you respect God? Do you have an awe of God? Because all of this wisdom funnels down to this point, to this invitation to become aware of the God who is there and to align our lives so that pleasure isn't God, so that riches aren't God, so that my ambition isn't God. Because if I make those the most important thing, life just becomes meaningless and empty. Instead, these, this ancient piece of poetry is inviting us, calling us, challenging us to make God the one we fear. God the one who's above all in our motivation and in our lives. And as I read this, I look at my own heart and I'm challenged. And the Holy Spirit, he wants to move in all of our different homes. And he wants to show us where perhaps God isn't the number one and he's calling us because as we live with God not the number one that's when we start to feel that life is meaningless pointless futile he's calling us and he's calling us back to that place that most beautiful place but it's not just to to fear God but what does fearing God look like well fearing God we can see it in the same verse fearing God looks like this living in obedience to him doing what he's called us to do. Now, you might have heard at the introduction earlier on, well, what is this bunch of people about? You know, who do they think they are? Do they all think that they're just doing good enough stuff to get into God's presence, good enough stuff to be able to approach him? Who do they think they are, that lot? A bunch of righteous, righteous uh, Bible bashers. If you're still here, I'm so glad you are. That's, that's great. But you see, what we were trying to say right at the beginning is that actually doing things, they don't make us right with God. 
And if we are reading this and thinking, you know, I've already blown it. If, if, if being able to live in relationship with God requires me to obey a load of things, then I'm afraid I've already lost it. And if you're thinking that tonight, then you've, you've got it right, actually. We've all lost it. And all of us in this crowd who are here tonight, none of us are good enough to come to God on the basis of our own obedience and the things that we do. But the ultimate thing that God calls us to do is that he calls us to trust in Jesus. And I'd invite you to listen to our meeting this morning. It's on YouTube. And it was about how Jesus has died for us and about how Jesus was dying for us to take our wrongness away. You see, we believe that, yes, there is a God who is there. There is a God who's outside of the system, who's brought it all into being. But he doesn't just stay outside and watch for a distance from a distance. He doesn't just implant wisdom and knowledge. Some of that wisdom and knowledge we've been accessing tonight through this ancient poetry. But he comes himself in the person of Jesus to this planet, walks among us, dies on a cross in our place. And he dies so that all that disobedience from our past, so that all of that wrongness could be paid for, could be forgiven. And you could call on anyone in that list or a number of people in that list and they would tell you their story. How one day they realized that the God who is there has come close in the person of Jesus. How they're not good enough to know God on their own, but that Jesus has died instead of us to bring forgiveness and new life. They would tell you their story of how perhaps they knelt down or perhaps how they stood up and cried out. Or how just in the quiet of their room one night they said, God, I'm sorry for all the wrong things I've done. Please forgive me. Please bring me into your embrace. Not because of the stuff I do, but because Jesus has died for me, I can have forgiveness. And the ultimate in obedience to God is to first trust that Jesus died for you. And then to say, Jesus, thank you that you've forgiven me for all my broken past. Now, how do I live? What do you want me to do? What do I do next? And the beautiful thing about the message of Jesus is that it's not just a message, a distant, a message that we can hear, but it's a relationship with the God who is there through Jesus. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit and enables us to live a life by his power in obedience to him. So conclusion. Well, he's told us two things so far. The first is that we should fear God, honor God, respect him because he is there. And the second is that we should obey him. And as the scriptures, the Bible um, written over time, slowly, slowly unveiled to us God's purpose for humanity. We realize at this side of the of history, at this side of the cross, he calls us to put our trust in Jesus who died for us. Allow him to fill us with his power so that we can live in obedience to him. And then the last part of this conclusion, the so what, is in verse 14. And it's, it's a challenging verse. It says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. 
You see, life doesn't end in death. Macbeth was wrong. Our Italian poet friend didn't have the whole picture either. You see, life, actually, it ends in judgment and then continues into the forever. And God is a righteous judge who will judge all that has been done. A lot of my friends say to me, yeah, that judgment, you know, it's a bit like a seesaw. You stack up your good stuff and you stack up your bad stuff. I've had a bit of a dodgy start, a lot of bad stuff on this side of the seesaw. So I'm trying to do a lot of good stuff to tip the balance back the other way. But, you know, God's judgment is is bigger than that. You see, God's judgment is, do we measure up? As my friend Colin showed me a phrase to say, do we measure up against God's rightness? And of course, the answer is none of us do. And that judgment day is something that is is frightening and fearful. But if you're a person who's trusting in Jesus tonight, then that judgment that is coming is no longer a terrifying thing because Jesus, he died in our place to take away our wrongness because it's not about a seesaw. Just the slightest bit of wrongness means that we can't enter into the presence of a holy, clean, powerful God. And so Jesus has come and he's died in our place. And he's died to take away our wrongness, to pass us his rightness like a gift. And he takes away our wrongness. And he hung on that cross, bearing it, carrying it, taking that guilt for us. There is a judgment coming. Life doesn't end in death. But life ends in the presence of God, the judge. But life ends in the presence of God, the judge who has come in the person of Jesus so that we needn't fall in that last judgment. So that when we stand in front of God at that judgment, we don't say, here I am with all the good things I've done. None of us would have done enough. Instead, we say, here I am. And I've come in Jesus's clothes, in Jesus's rightness. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to stand here. But Jesus has dealt with all that rubbish. He's taken away all that wrongness. And then if you're in that place of trusting that Jesus who's died for you, then that judgment doesn't need to bring terror and fear. And so this amazing book of philosophy ends. And it ends with this so. And it is saying to us life isn't meaningless. Life does have a purpose. Why does it have a purpose? It has a purpose because there's a God who is there, a God we're made to know, a God who reveals himself. And we know more than this philosopher. We know more than this great teacher, not because we're cleverer, but just because we're later in history. And we know the God who is there because he's come in the person of Jesus and he calls us to obey him, to put our trust in him. And he tells us, Yes, time is going to come to that conclusion where there is a judgment and we can only head to that judgment without fear if we're trusting in Jesus. You know, tonight, some of us are listening in and and we know what that's about. We know what it is to be rescued. We know what it is to put our trust in Jesus. And as we hear this and think about it, we are grateful 
and we want to come back and say thank you to him again. Others of us are listening in. Perhaps you're listening in over a friend's shoulder. Perhaps you spotted that link on Twitter and you just thought you'd drop in and see what it was about and you're still here. Well, you know, tonight God is calling you. He's inviting you. And as you've heard tonight, no one can say, look, I'm not good enough. Because, of course, none of us are good enough. You see, Jesus has died for those who know they need a rescue. And he invites you to say, look, I fear you, God. I want to have awe of you. I want to ask you for forgiveness because of Jesus who's died and risen again. I want to ask for your power so I can live in obedience to you. So that judgment day doesn't hold fear for me. You know, we've got more time these days. A lot of us have at least. And it would be great to keep thinking over these things. So you could listen on through a number of other Oakwood Church podcasts. You can just pop us a message. Welcome at oakwoodchurch.org.uk. We'd give you a call. We'd love to keep chatting about these big things um, together. I'm going to pray now. And then in a moment, um, Ross is going to sing another ancient piece of poetry to us as we finish up our evening. And uh, But let's just pray together. That's just speaking to God, believing he's there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could stop and share this evening, share this evening with each other. We thank you that as we've read this ancient piece of poetry, that we haven't just been sharing this evening with each other, but that we've been inviting you to speak into our lives. And we pray that we wouldn't be those who are living under the illusion that life is pointless, meaningless, futile, but that instead we would be those who fear you, who have awe of you, who seek you, that we would be those who obey you, who obey you by trusting in Jesus, receiving his forgiveness and his power to live for your glory. We pray we would be those who live in the light of that day when we'll be standing in your presence, that judgment day. We pray that none of us listening tonight would have fear of that judgment day because we are trusting in you, Jesus. And perhaps you're prompting some of us to now spend some time reading on in one of the accounts of your life, Lord Jesus, as we examine these things further. Perhaps others of us, you're prompting us to call a friend, to talk to them about these big things in these days with this unusual rhythm. Perhaps for others of us, you're calling us just to kneel down in our room now and ask you for forgiveness. We pray that you would change our lives. We pray you change our communities. We pray that you would bring us collectively to be a people who live for your glory. We entrust each other into your hands this evening. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen.